Are you all ready to talk about the end of the world? We're going to talk about the end of the world, but not as we know it, uh, as Jesus does. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to look at Matthew 25. So the 25th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, we've been studying this gospel account for some time now. So if you're just joining us, the reason we're in Matthew 25 is because we're working our way all the way through it. So Matthew 24, 25 emphasize this awful thing that is awful if you're an unbeliever, awful in a bad sense, but awful if you're a believer in a good sense. No more suffering, no more unrighteousness, no more injustice. And the takeaway ends up being you want to trust in Christ. So it's awful in a good sense, not awful in a bad sense. So as we work our way through Matthew 25, I have two words that start with R that I think will help you remember what the emphasis is. So in Matthew 25, there are two parables, and there's also a, a, a challenge about the, 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 the second coming. But the first R word that will help you is the word ready. It's all about being ready. Jesus doesn't actually use that word. He uses the word watch, but I needed it to be an R word to fit my preaching today. So you need to be ready. You need to be watchful. And then what will, so that's the overall emphasis. But in order to be ready, to be watchful in the right sense, the next R word, the second one is you, you, you need to be righteous. In order to be ready, you have to be righteous. And I've been doing this long enough now to know that lots of people, lots of even Christians, don't know what it means to be righteous. And so if you know you came to the right place, if you don't know you came to the right place, because I'm going to help you know what it means to be righteous. But you can't be ready unless you're righteous. And how can you be righteous if you don't know that what that means? And so we'll talk about that. But how about this? The righteous part is at the end. So you can't leave early. You can't check out. I know lots of sermons by the end, they kind of just die out. And the pastor says, well, let's close in prayer. And that's the conclusion. Uh, been there, done that. Today won't be one of those kinds of days. Because a, a super critical part of all of this matter of being ready is being righteous. And that comes at the end of Matthew 25. And so I'm all caffeinated up. Um, I'm, I've hopefully prayed up, studied up, ready to go. And I hope you can do that along with me. Before we get into things, though, I do have a third R that's not in our passage. But since we're talking about the end of the world, I'm going to bring up another R word just to talk about it because it came up last week in conversation, and that's the word rapture. Okay, we're not going to talk about the rapture today because it's not in Matthew 25. But someone said to me last week in Matthew 24, they said, I noticed you didn't talk about the rapture. And I said, thank you for noticing. I didn't talk about the rapture in Matthew 24 because it's not in Matthew 24. And it's not in Matthew 25. We should probably talk about that for a minute, though. For a long time, I looked and looked and looked and looked to find the rapture in Matthew 24 because I was pretty sure it was there. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you still think that it's there. But I couldn't find it. And then I read scholars who don't believe in a secret rapture. And they said it's not there. And then I read scholars who do believe in a secret rapture. And they said it's not there. So I don't know of any, I'm sure there are some, I've met lots of people who believe in a secret rapture, 
pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, dispensational rapture. I've met lots of people, scholars and lay people alike, Bible teachers also. And I don't know of a single one that thinks that Matthew 20, 20, 24, 25 have the rapture in them. So I'm in good company. So whether you're not in the, the, that school uh, or you're in that school, it's pretty much unanimously agreed it's not there. And so you might be thinking to yourself, though, then why do I think it's there? Well, in 1972, I don't want to see a show of hands who was there around then. I was three. So in 1972, I never went to go see A Thief in the Night, the movie. But that's when it came out. A Thief in the Night was a movie, follow me, about the rapture. But its title comes from Matthew 24, which says nothing about the rapture. Oh. Maybe that's why I looked and looked and looked and looked. Because I did see the movie later. It's kind of a cult classic. Uh, I saw it as an adult and found it entertaining and interesting. So some of you perhaps think the rapture's in Matthew 24 because Thief in the Night. Or other books that came afterward that would talk about other things in Matthew 24 related to the rapture. Even though the most adamant rapture scholars say it's not there. So I don't mean to spoil the party. Just letting you know. I left it out for good reason. Now, one more thing about it, and and I mean this sincerely and seriously. God is good and kind and gracious. And I would just guess that perhaps maybe even here today, someone became a Christian because they watched The Thief in the Night. And I would say, praise God. That would be the right response. To be afraid that Jesus is coming back, even if it's the wrong chapter. To be afraid that he's coming back so that it causes you to think about spiritual things and think about who Jesus is and you come to believe in Jesus, that would be good. I say praise God for a thief in the night if God used it in your life. So don't get me wrong. It's it's a positive thing. But we're not talking about the rapture in Matthew 24 and 25 because it's not there. Uh, and That's pretty much commonly agreed. Fair enough? Have you found Matthew 25 yet? I hope you have. Here's what happens in Matthew 25. Okay, we're going to focus on being ready and being righteous. And what he does is he gives a parable, a second parable, and then he starts unpacking some great profound details about his return. So here we go. First parable about the return of Christ. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then, and it's a then when Christ comes in His glory, verse 31 is going to say. So then, second advent, second coming, return of Christ, however you'd like to say it. Those are all describing the same thing. Then, on that day, the kingdom of heaven, the rain that comes from heaven, unlike all other rains, like unlike all other rulers, the kingdom of heaven, divine origin, by way of contrasts will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. What's that about? We'll keep reading and learn, but for now, let's at least acknowledge that these 10 young maidens, these 10 young women would be similar to what we would call bridesmaids. 
Uh, they had different customs than we have today in the 21st century, but we can certainly relate. We have all kinds of different customs when it comes to a wedding, and these people do this, and those people do that, and everything needs to be just so. We're going to have a wedding coordinator, and if you don't do it right, it's going to reflect poorly on the families and the bride and groom and the church and the pastor, and so let's get everything right according to our customs. Well, they were serious about these things the way we're serious about these things. And best we can tell, the responsibility of the bridesmaids, if you will, the ten young maidens, family members, close friends, their responsibility, first responsibility, but let's pretend like they only had one responsibility for now. Their responsibility would be to go, when the timing is right, to go and greet the groom and his wedding party, his friends, his family, as a formal, customary way of Starting off the wedding, starting off the feast, starting off the celebration. And so what they would do is, apparently we want to get the wedding celebration started early. You might think late, um, but let's start it early so it moves into the wee hours of the morning to get things started. And so it's going to be dark. We're going to do this at night. We're going to see it says midnight. So we're going to do it sometime when it's really dark so that they can have their lamps lit to light the path as the welcoming party. And, and once you see they're coming and once you see the groom is coming, you have one job, ten virgins. You are the welcoming party, right? This, this is a way to show love, respect for the families, to the bride, to the groom. That's their responsibility. Now remember, they don't have Wi-Fi. Remember, they don't have cell towers. They don't have cell phones. They don't have the internet. Uh, they can't say, okay, everybody set your watches. This is when it's all going to happen. So be ready. Nobody be late. It's going to be at nighttime. We're going to try to explain when it's going to be. But it, it's certainly going to happen. But the exact details, we, we can't tell you. So you be on guard. Be on the lookout. And when you see him coming, it's time to go. Right? Pretty straightforward. Now, it could even be more complicated. I'm not saying it's the case here in Jesus' mind. But more complicated, sometimes in for weddings, they would actually come from a different city, a different town. So wh- when, when is it? It could even be, are they coming today? Are they, are they, wh- when exactly is it going to be? And maybe there's a traveler that you can ask, and they say, oh, yeah, I think I saw those people. Oh, let, let's go out. Oh, you know, false start, wasn't them. Oh, it seems like there's somebody coming. We have to get the timing right. Let's go out. Oh, no, false start. That wasn't it. I do belabor this a little bit because you do get the sense that maybe there have been some false starts and they're like, I'm over it. Okay, I probably told you more than you need to know, but it's important, okay? Their biggest day in some senses, right? Five of them were foolish, in verse 2, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps, as the bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy and slept. Okay. Well, you have one job. It's the big day. There you have it. Let's keep going. Verse 6. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. See, 
again, I don't want to read too much into it, but it seems like maybe they, they'd tried this before and by now, you know what? We're not going to be able to do it. We're not, we're not prepared appropriately. That's the idea. They're not ready. They're not watchful rightly. Verse nine says, but the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us to go for, for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready, oh, the word is in there. Ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. It's time. Everything is in order. Everything is just so. Oh, except for the first thing that's supposed to happen. They aren't ready. We say today, you had one job. It's an extraordinary day. It's the day of days, sometimes brides and grooms think. One of the greatest days of their life and for the families. Then it says in verse 11, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. So afterward, after the welcome party, after the part they're supposed to be there for, they show up. Now they have the oil in their lamps and they say, okay, we're ready. Lord, Lord, open to us. And we say, awkward. Verse 12 says, But he, the groom, the Lord, that they're crying out to, answered, Truly, earnestly, sincerely, I say to you, I do not know you. Doesn't mean he doesn't know their names. He doesn't mean, doesn't mean he doesn't recognize them. Think intimacy, and I don't mean sexual intimacy. I mean spiritual intimacy, closeness, family connection, close, positive, loving relationship. And here the groom says, maybe members of his family who are participating, for sure members of her family who are about to become his family, and he will know them. I don't even know you, obviously. You don't care about this relationship. You might look like you care, but you obviously don't care. It was a simple task. It was just a matter of being ready. It wasn't complicated. It wasn't hard. So your heart's obviously not in this, I think would be a good way to think of it. You've got to be ready. You've got to actually love Jesus. <laughs> you actually have to have a desire to... to, to to meet him and have him be happy with the way you meet him. Seems to be the overall big picture kind of takeaway. And so the command, the one command that I'm aware of, there might be more than one. I didn't scour it when looking for commands, but the one that really stands out in this whole thing is in verse 13, watch. I'm using the, 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 the label, be ready. There's the idea, watch, be ready, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. There it is. Be on the alert. I love Christ. I can't wait to see Him and be made like Him. But I'm trusting in Him and so I can long for that day when He comes. It's pretty straightforward. The way to be ready in so many ways is to love Christ. The way to be ready is to be looking for Him because He's your Savior, because He's your everything. He's your Messiah, Deliverer, Reconciler, all the great things that a Messiah Christ is. So I'm already giving you hints about how to be ready. It has everything to do with Jesus. 
How are we doing? Ever been stressed out by a wedding? I've officiated some of your weddings and I've never been stressed out by any of them. I just want you to know. I was told in seminary, you'll never make a wedding, but you can break a wedding. (sighs) Stress me out. As a new pastor, I would officiate so many weddings, multiple weddings in one weekend. And I got, I would lose sleep, have nightmares, cold sweats. I mean, like having serious issues. And so finally my solution was I, I mean, you know, you show up and you, you think you, you know, you don't, you have the wrong clothes on. I won't say any more than that. And you're not, you're late. So I, my biggest one was I, I wouldn't have my notes. And I don't think I could officiate a wedding now without notes, but especially as a newer pastor, I got to have those notes. And so what I did, ah, what I did was I printed out generic notes with blanks for names, printed them out and put them in my office Never another bad dream. Help me to get ready <laughs> for weddings. There's so many things to do to have it be right and to be prepared. And if you care about the couple, you care about the families, you do whatever is necessary to try your best to do your part. Well, not a perfect illustration, but obviously Christians care about Christ. We say he's our savior. We say we long for him to return and bring about justice and to bring about ultimate salvation and redemption. It's more than just saying, I'm a Christian. There's actually a knowing, desiring heart, I love Christ, which causes you to anticipate his return. I think that's the gist of what he's getting at. Remember, he's talking to the Jewish nation or in the context of the Jewish nation where they would have been Christ fanatics in in talk. Messiah fanatics in talk. They certainly aren't ready when he shows up. They come to all the wrong conclusions. Okay, I hope, I hope we're ready to move on. I don't have any more stories. Okay, number, there's, there's another second coming parable. We call it the parable of the talents or the landowner or whatever you'd like to call it. It doesn't really matter as long as we understand it. Verse 14 says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. So far so good? I think so far so good and so far really good. He actually is thoughtful in thinking about who he's going to give what responsibilities to. Right? So he's not giving them more than they can handle. He's thoughtful. He's kind. Okay, each one according to his ability. So far, so good. Verse 16 says, He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, I don't want to make too much of that, but it's interesting we're talking about Christ's return and being ready. And here we have... Is it going to be now? Is it going to be tomorrow? And in this case, a long time passes. Again, I wouldn't want to build a whole thing on that. But there's closeness, be ready. But you know what? It might take a long time. Just something to think about. The master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Verse 20 says, And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Here's the good part. Enter into the joy of your master. 
I like that from different angles. It's going to be joyful for him because he did the right thing. And the relationship is that kind of relationship. You have a master and a servant. And so, you know what? He did what would please his master, and that makes his master have joy. And that actually brings fulfillment in his life. It makes him happy as well. There's joy involved. Everything's positive. Keep that in mind because we're going to see joy, joy, and then we're going to see weeping and gnashing of teeth by way of contrast. And he also, verse 22 says, And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. Verse 23 says, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter, here we have it again, enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24 says, He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you. Get this, don't miss it. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And at that moment, you're supposed to have, you know, this furled brow, if that's what this is, and say, what? So so you are irresponsible and you're going to blame it on the character of the one who gave you this? It's fascinating to me how many times people do that kind of theology. Well, it's actually God. He's, he's the problem, and therefore that's why I live the way I live, and he can't hold me accountable. It happens over and over and over again. It is happening here, even though we're not to the theology part of it yet. Verse 25 says, So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, how about this? It is in the form of a question, so let's read it that way. At least the second part. He says, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Oh, you, you knew that, did you? You knew that I was a bad bad master? Are, are you out of your ever-loving mind about how all of this works? Are you... Are, you've got to be kidding me. Excuse me? What are you even talking about? What you're saying doesn't even make logical sense. And it's not true. Then 23 says, Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. 29 says, for to everyone who has will be more given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I wonder what he means by that. My best guess is even the common grace and the long-suffering and the things you're enjoying that you don't deserve in time are going to be taken away. The unbeliever enjoys so much now and they won't when it comes to the second advent of Christ. Even what he has will be taken away. Verse 30 says, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be not the joy of his master, it will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And and you all don't need me, if you've read the Bible at least once, to know Jesus talks this way a lot. 
And he uses this kind of verbiage to talk about eternal condemnation and judgment, hell, where people get what they deserve. So it's really severe. It's a severe parable. Before we move on, I I hope maybe you've noticed something. I realize I've had a little bit more time to let this kind of marinate and kind of ruminate in my mind and meditate and think about this, but it struck me how long-suffering Jesus has been. It's really remarkable. It's not like he gives one parable or one illustration or one, it's like this. And, and we can say, yeah, that's confusing. I don't, I don't really understand. It's been illustration after illustration after illustration like this. It's like this. It's like this. Think with me, if you would. T- chapter 24, he talked about servants and masters. Well, most of us could understand that kind of relationship, but may, let's just say we can't. Um, he talked about a tree with fruit. Most of us can understand that kind of analogy and understand something about the second advent of Christ. And you say, well, I, I don't really understand fruit and trees. And I don't really understand work. Okay. <laughs> right? Uh, ever been to a wedding? Yeah, but you know, that first century customs and manners, and it's so different from what we have today. Really? I thought I did a pretty good job of explaining it and making it kind of like today. Um, so now we're moving on, right? And now we're back to servants and masters again and, and trusting something and, and thoughtfully doing so. And, and you know, he's going to get to livestock now pretty soon. He's going to get to animals and he's going to get to sheep and goats. I think, it, I think it's remarkable. Illustration after illustration after illustration. Maybe let's just say for argument, nine out of 10, 90% you don't get. Surely everyone can understand the need to be ready because he is coming again in glory to bring judgment. And if we can't understand that, well, it's like this. It's like this. It's like this. It's like this. Patient, long-suffering, merciful, kind. But one day, it is going to be too late. And it has everything to do with whether or not you've seen Jesus for who he is and you've trusted in him as opposed to accusing him of being the problem. Dear friends, we've got to get this. Supernaturally, by the power of the Spirit, we've got to get this. The day is coming. There's something in this that wants it to come because we don't like injustice. There is an answer to all the problems of this world. And it is Jesus who will judge, who will rule and reign in perfect righteousness. But that's not good news for people like you and people like me unless we're trusting in him. Okay, let's move on to some specifics in verses 31 and following. We have the two parables done. And then he says, oh, this is, this is grand. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And there's so many things I want you to make sure you see about that and how grand and how awful it is. Double senses. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, I remind you that Son of Man is not emphasizing humility. 
That would contradict the passage. The Son of Man comes in His glory. He sits on a throne. That's what kings do. So sometimes our Sunday school teachers haven't helped us very much and our preachers haven't helped us very much. Sometimes our commentators haven't helped us very much when they say, oh, Son of Man emphasizes humility, humanity. I can argue for the humanity side of it. The ultimate human, the ultimate representative, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate Adam, the one who will be the Messiah, it's borrowed from, it's taken from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, son of man talk is for the one who will rule and reign, not be humiliated. He will rule and reign and he will rule and reign forever. That's a unique, powerful person. And so I want you to see when the son of man comes in his glory, this is not the humiliation, which is true. He humbles himself, Philippians 2, but Philippians 2 goes on to talk about every knee bowing, every tongue confessing. This is the latter one. When he comes in his glory, think grandeur, greatness, splendor. You say that is glorious. It is great. And then it goes on to say, and all the angels with him, grand, glorious. Remember in chapter 24, I think it's in verse 31, they're his angels. The sovereign king is returning is what it's getting at. And then it says, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Again, not humiliation, but exaltation. That day is going to come. First coming, a lot of humiliation. He's going to be crucified too. We're going to see it here in chapter 26. But when he comes again, second advent, anything but. I also want you to see a couple things there in verse 31. It says, it opens with when. Also, it ends with he will. It's important. It's not a matter of if. When he's prophesying, this is going to happen. When this happens, he, meaning himself, will. So we don't have to wonder if it's going to happen. It's actually going to happen. And this, my friends, is really important, especially when we get to next week, because he's also going to prophesy in chapter 26, verses 1 and 2, the Son of Man will be, starts with a C, crucified. So before the crucifixion, humiliation, he says about himself, he says he about himself, he's going to be crucified, ultimate humiliation, if you will. But you also have to back up before that ever even happens. He's, he says, you know, it's true about me. I'm going to rule and reign and I'm going to be seated on my throne and I'm going to return with my angels and there'll be nothing like it. It's got my attention. It makes me want to preach about the great grandeur and glory of the Messiah, the Christ, the Deliverer, the Judge, you better be ready. And the key to being ready for Him to return as Judge is to find your safety, we're going to see, in Him. It's to find it in Him. Chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. I won't take the time to read it all, but the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's not by accident or happenstance. He's already, as sure as he's talking about his return, he's talking about his crucifixion, which is important to see. His kingdom will be, well, if we want to use theological categories like we do sometimes when we're working through these issues, his kingdom has been, with his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, it has been inaugurated. We are part of the new creation, part of the kingdom. 
He is ruling and reigning, but it one day when he returns, inauguration, that's happened. What's the next Eurasian word? Right? Consummation. It's as sure as, how about this? Consummation is as sure as done even before inauguration. If you put 25 and 26 together, and if you can't follow the consummation, inauguration verbiage, like I can't in my head right now, it's okay. You can still be a Christian. We just like using big words sometimes so people feel like they get their money's worth. Categories are actually important in trying to think this through. Is Jesus the king who's ruling and reigning right now? You can bet your spiritual boots he is. But it's going to be different when he returns. Second advent. Consummation. We long for that day as believers. Oh, there's so much I want to talk about. My mind goes back to Matthew 16. Remember, I will build my church and the gates of hell, Hades, death, if you will, will not prevail. That complements this text. They're going to crucify me, but before they crucify me, let me tell you how it's going to be. I'm in charge here. That's why you want to trust in him. Okay. Man, I'm so glad I get to be a preacher. I couldn't be you. Couldn't sit there. (laughs) I think they would lock me up. Christ is a glorious, great, grand Messiah, and he's yours if you trust in him. This stuff isn't aimed at being against you. It's for you. Verse 32 says, Before him we, excuse me, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from, from, uh, sorry, get too excited. Will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Doesn't help to memorize the Bible in a different translation either. It's an excuse. He's going to judge, in other words. He's going to distinguish which might not be the popular Jesus, but it's the Jesus who is the Messiah. So there's going to be a distinction. There's going to be a difference. Don't be fooled by chapter 26, verses 1 and 2, and what happens after when he's crucified. Don't be fooled. He's going to be this one who does this, who is the judge. Verse 33 says, And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come. I can't help but pause for a moment and think of chapter 11 when he says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. Yeah, we do that and we're waiting in the meantime. It's all true and we have salvation in him, but we're also waiting. Again, let's say, cons- let's say inauguration. We're waiting for a consummation. We're waiting for that second welcoming. Come to me. If we're resting in him. No more tears then. No more sorrow then. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Oh, this is so good. Inherit the kingdom. I'm going to pause there for a second. It sounds like he's been taking classes from the Apostle Paul. Well, no, we have it backward. Inherit the kingdom. He he goes on to say, if we inherit the kingdom, that means we're heirs. It means we're part of the family we've been adopted in. Inherit talk is heir talk. Well, Jesus didn't learn it from Paul, but Paul learns it from Jesus. And as an apostle unpacks it, like in chapter 8, I mean, the only way for the kingdom to be yours, 
The only way to be an heir, the only way to inherit the kingdom is to be one of the children. And that's what's so great about the, not just this passage, but even where it gets unpacked, like in Romans chapter 8, we are heirs. Because we're united to Christ, the faithful son by faith. And so he welcomes us and now it's our kingdom. Because we are united to him. So wonderful. But then if we keep reading, that's Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. Don't have time to do it right now. But for now, let's see. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom, the new creation, second advent, consummated, prepared for you, it says, from the foundation of the world. Does that sound familiar? Well, we were in Ephesians 1 not very long ago, and the verbiage is a tiny bit different, but the essence is the same. In Him, Christ, united to Christ before the foundation of the world, is what it means to be a Christian. God has had a plan all along. So we go way back, pre-Genesis, there's a plan for redemption through His Son, so that His Son would be a faithful representative, and He would redeem God's elect. That's Ephesians chapter 1, but Jesus would affirm it. He's been using that kind of talk, even in this Olivet Discourse. And it's a purpose and a plan that has to do with the exaltation of the Messiah Christ Savior, Deliverer, Judge, but it's good for the people of God. And it's been the, what did he say again? From the foundation of the world plan. I just want to go, hallelujah. This is, you, this is amazing. This is staggering. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6. Same sort of thing, and it's all because of Him. Okay, regarding the sheep, it says in verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. Okay, this is the time where I needed to tell you the sermon's not going to die uh, a thousand deaths. It's not going to just get slower, and then I'm going to say, in conclusion, let's close in prayer. Okay, I'm not running out of steam. So don't you run out of steam, because we need to be ready Got that much figured out. The key to be ready is Christ, but he's now going to start talking about righteous and righteousness. And I want you to know what it means to be righteous. What does righteous mean? What does it look like? And I also want you to even think about where does that come from? If that's the requirement to be ready, what's this going to look like? And I would guess if we read this out of context, which we're doing right now, but then we'll look at the whole context. If we read it out of context, we might come to some really bad conclusions about how to be ready. Hang in there, folks. Your pastor is trying to carefully say, come on, we got to get this right. Let's not, leaving, let's not leave thinking like we're members of a different religion other than Christians by taking this out of context. Ready? Hope you are. Let's go. Verse 35 says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed, welcomed me. I was, in, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous. Righteous means law keeper. You can check 10 Greek dictionaries. I have maybe nine, if I'm honest. It means obedient to God's law. Then the obedient ones, 
the righteous. Kind of doesn't sound like Christianity momentarily. Then the righteous, those who obey God's law, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. Jesus uses that, remember, not even for his immediate family at times. For believers, for disciples, brothers, spiritual brothers, he says, you did it to me. So the sheep are those who love Jesus, right? And we're going to see, and we're seeing it here, even if they didn't actually do it to Jesus, they loved others who belonged to Jesus. And it's as if they were loving Jesus if they loved others who belonged to Jesus because we're united to Him by faith. There's solidarity where, where there's union. We're together. And He's saying, they're the righteous ones. They're the ones who obeyed God's commands. They love which is what God's commands require. We're getting some traction. I don't think we should be done yet. I hope we're not done yet. I know we're not done yet. We haven't looked at it at this in the greater context yet. But do notice the sheep are those who loved Jesus. Tangible love, and yet Jesus isn't there, so they love others who belong to Jesus. Follow me? Reminds me of what First John says on so many different occasions in so many different ways. Those who love the brethren have been born of God. We love because God loved us first. That kind of stuff. First John 4, 7 is one good example. 4, 19 to 21, another one. But now, I'm tempted to go. So, oh, let, let's keep going. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And did not minister to you. Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of these one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So you might profess, but you didn't love others who are united to me and therefore showed that you didn't actually love me. This is a lot like First John. Jesus didn't study under John. John studied under Jesus. But it's for good reason. It sounds like a similar kind of thing going on. And then the final word, at least for today, this is something we really need to think about and consider. Verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, justice for them because they didn't respond to Christ the right way. But the righteous, oh, I told you that our word was important, the righteous into eternal life. Would you think with me about this a little bit? Would you think with me in one sense about how non-Christian this sounds? Okay. Bad people who don't love go to hell. Okay, I get it. That would be just. 
Righteous people who obey God's law go to heaven. They're the sheep. I, I get it in theory, but apart from a grander context and stepping back, I think we're going to come to a lot of wrong conclusions. Don't you? Would you like me to say, all right, everybody, make sure you're righteous. Make sure you love all other Christians perfectly, personally, and perpetually, or you're a goat and you're going to hell. That's that's not good news. So I remind you of something I've been reminding you of all along, and I'm going to do it again, and hopefully for good reason, how the whole gospel story that Matthew tells opens up so that we don't start interpreting this out of context so we sound like we're part of a different religion. Chapter 1, verse 21. Name him Jesus. Why? Because he, he will save his people. He will deliver his people from their sins. There's another way to read that just for effect. He will save his people from their unrighteousness. Because to begin with, there's none righteous, no, not one. We read it in the Psalm, no one good, no, not one. In God's providence, Psalm 14 today, we get it in Romans chapter 3, none righteous, no, not one. So if that were the case, and we were to interpret this in isolation, how many sheep would there be? There wouldn't be any sheep. There wouldn't be any sheep. There wouldn't be anybody on his right hand. But he comes to save his people from their unrighteousness because he himself is Jesus Christ. First John 2 says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the perfect upholder of God's law who loves perfectly. So we trust in him. This is Romans 3. This is Romans 4. This is First Peter, the, the righteous for the unrighteous. He takes our place. So his perfect righteousness is credited to our account. So God can then treat us as righteous individuals, law keepers, even though we're not. And so we can be sheeple on the right hand because of perfect righteousness. So two things are happening. Two things are true. And this actually is really important. You've got to have Christ's perfect righteousness given to you or you're going to be a goat. For sure. For sure. You've got to trust in Him. He came to save His people. He's the acting agent to save His people from their sins. You've you've, you've got to trust in Christ. Here the text is emphasizing what complements that. If God has loved you and you've trusted in Christ, you then now... Love as he loved. And now you do righteousness, not perfectly for your salvation, because that's what he does. But now, brokenly true, but authentically because of salvation. And now we want to live righteously because we belong to him by faith. This is actually really important. It's not super complicated. The message of Christianity is trust in Christ. He's the Savior. The righteous. His works, we get in because he is the heir, so we're heirs with him. That's the basic message. And then, now let's seek to do the right thing, which is love. And we give evidence that we're sheeple, for effect, sheep, because we love other sheep. We belong to him. 
The way to be ready for the return of Christ, and you do need to be ready, is to be perfectly righteous. <laughs> and that can be done if you trust in Christ. And then complementing that is to be imperfectly righteous in your living, but you are seeking to honor Christ with your righteousness. Isn't it interesting how people have observed before that salvation, we're saved from the penalty of our sin? True. We are also saved from the power of our sin. That's even true now. We actually can love one another. One day when we're glorified and we see Him and we're made like Him, we'll be saved from the presence of our sin. All three are true. We're longing for the day when the presence is gone and it's not a struggle anymore. Be ready. Be looking to Christ in His righteousness and then let's be loving each other which gives evidence that we belong to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for a great, great text like this. But more importantly, thank you for a great matchless powerful, wise, compassionate, merciful, sufficient Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. We love Him. We long for His return. We also long for others that we know to trust in Him so that they too can join us and not fearing condemnation, but waiting for Christ who is the ultimate deliverer. In His name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you as you go.